want you to take your Bibles, please, and open up to the book of Romans. <clears throat> the book of Romans, chapter 5. And we want to look at the text here today, beginning at verse uh, 12. Actually, we're going to pick it up. Well, let's, let's, let's start here. This is, this is so good. This is a powerful passage of Scripture. Let's stand together. You follow along as I read Romans 5, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not to be taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But if the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more, put a circle around those three words, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many transgressions and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, here it is again, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? One man, Adam, he sinned and condemnation has come to the whole world. One man, Jesus Christ died on the cross not to condemn us but to give us life everlasting. That's what justification is. Justification it means that in the eyes of Jesus as we receive his gift he looks upon us just as if we never sinned. Instead of condemnation, we are the righteousness of God. Does that make you excited? Yes. Oh, praise God. You are awake now. Okay. <laughs> Aren't you thankful for your salvation this morning? We belong to the family of God, the greatest family on earth. And we're going to start a series this morning on the attributes of God. And we're going to learn about who God is is let's pray father in heaven open our minds to your truth today in jesus name amen you may be seated the child the philosopher and the theologian have one common question and that question is what is God like? I'm sure many of you have asked yourselves that very same question. What is God like? The question is not, does God exist? Most people in our world today believe that there is a God. In fact, the Harris Poll recently points out that 97% believe in the existence of God. 
So the question is not, does God exist? But what is God like? It's not a question of existence. It is a question of relevance. What indeed is our concept of God? Or better still, do we understand who God is through the way in which he made himself known to us through the scriptures? I've discovered that many, even a surprisingly large number of Christ followers have a low view of God. A low view of God on one hand and on the other hand, they have difficulty understanding and relating to this one who loves them so much. Some conceive God to be some sort of a judge or a heavenly policeman, ready to pounce on them the moment they do anything wrong and ready to nail them to the wall when he catches them. God's ready to pounce on us. It's a faulty view of God. Still others view God as some kind of a cosmic bellhop, always available at a moment's notice when we're in the midst of an emergency or a problem, and then we don't want anything to do with him when everything's going well. We push the button, and God shows up. And still others view God as an absentee landlord, aloof and distant, unconcerned about the pressures and struggles that come into our lives. Even the theological community has difficulty understanding what God is like. I'm reminded of the story that the late W.R. Criswell told a group of theological students in chapel at Dallas Theological Seminary. He speculated that the modern-day theologians, Barth, Bruner, Bonhoeffer, Boltman, Tillich, met the Lord Jesus. And the Lord asked these famed and illustrious theologians, who do men say that I am? And they replied, some of you say you are John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And even some say that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then the Lord looked these illustrious theologians in the eye. And he asked them, but what do you say that I am? And Bart, Bonhoeffer, Bruner, Boltman, and Telly course back their learned academic answers. Thou art the ground of all being. Thou art the leap of faith into the impenetrable unknown. Thou art the existential, unphrasable, unverbalized, unpropositional confrontation with the infinitude of inherent subjective experience. And the Lord said, Huh? Let's be honest this morning. Most of us need a new God. Not new in the sense that we have never known him before, but new in the sense that he becomes deeply real and personal to us. We need to clear away the cobwebs the cobwebs of misconceptions about God and see him as he truly is, as he has made himself known to us in the scriptures. 
And I love the way the late J. Sidlow Baxter in his book, Majesty, describes God. And you may want to jot this down. God is the true meaning of awesome. God is the true meaning of awesome. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. The scriptures, the scriptures repeatedly say that God is an awesome God. In fact, of all the biblical writers, the psalmist speaks of God's awesomeness more than any other. In Psalm 47 and verse 2, how awesome is the Lord most high, the great king over all the earth. Psalm 68, 35, you are awesome, O God, in your sanctuary. Psalm 89, 7 and 8, in the counsel of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. You are mighty, O Lord, your faithfulness surrounds us. The psalmist again and again affirms this incredible truth about God that he is the true meaning of awesome. And a brief survey of Scripture reveals that everything about God is awesome. And when our attention is upon Him, listen, there is a sense of wonder, a sense of awe, a sense of something very, very extraordinary. Now, in our culture, we throw that word awesome around so casually. I mean, we watch a, an NBA basketball game and we see LeBron James uh, do a, a dribble the basketball between his legs and do a twisting two-hand dunk between th three defenders and we say, oh, that's awesome. We see some guy catch the football with one hand in the end zone Oh, oh, awesome. I mean, 50 years ago when we landed a man on the moon, it's awesome. A few years back, Mars, they did that Mars probe and they uh, uh, sent back to Earth these incredible pictures of the red planet. And what was our response? That's awesome. But let me remind you, there is nothing that man has created or manufactured that is more awesome than God. Our God supersedes anything mankind has ever achieved or conceived. Indeed, he is the true meaning of awesome. Let me give you some scriptures. Psalm 99.3, God's name is awesome. Job 37.22, God's majesty is awesome. Psalm 65.5, God's righteousness is awesome. Exodus 15.11, God's glory is awesome. Job 10.16, God's power is awesome. Exodus 34.10, God's works are awesome. Psalm 145, 6, God's wonders are awesome. Psalm 45 and verse 6, God's deeds are awesome. And therefore, because God is awesome and incomparable in his person, he is far from being someone who is tyrannical and easily manipulated and unsympathetic 
or uncaring, aloof, or distant. To the contrary, the God of the Bible is very loving and personal, dependable and faithful. Far from being a God that is unknown, impenetrable, and indefinable, he is, as the late Francis Schaeffer describes him, he is the God who is there. God is present. And how important it is that we have a proper concept of God. A.W. Tozer, in his outstanding little book, The Knowledge of the Holy, puts it this way. It's impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inner attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous and inadequate. To understand God as we ought, we must focus on his attributes. Indeed, for the soul that is thirsty for God, no study could be more satisfying or rewarding. Now, what are attributes? An attribute, in the words of Tozer, is whatever God has in any way revealed about himself. The attributes of God are not qualities he possesses. <coughs> Excuse me. But rather, they are the very essence of his being. Love, for example, is not something God possesses, which may grow or diminish or may cease to be. God's love is the way God is. God is love. He doesn't possess love. He is the embodiment of love. And as it is with God's love, so it is with all the other great attributes of God. This morning, I want us to focus our attention on the grace of God. The grace of God. Now, what is grace? Well, let me tell you. Uh, Grace is not a blue-eyed blonde, not a brown-eyed brunette. Grace is not a hastily said prayer by scratching our eyebrows and bowing our head. Grace is not a period of time between when a bill's due and when it's late. No, grace is an attribute of God that is infinite and eternal. It is without beginning or ending. God's grace is his goodness directed toward human need. It is God's good pleasure compelling him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. Grace is God opening up in love to a world and saying, I care about you. We see this in the this morning, chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Here it is. Underline it in chartreuse. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Grace can't be earned. 
that never needs to be paid back. It's a gift that has been given by a loving God to everyone who will put their faith and their trust in Jesus. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, puts it this way, grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us more. There is nothing that we can do to make God love us less. And there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. It means that an infinite God already loves us and as much as God could possibly ever love us. Grace. Aren't you thankful for God's grace? Where would any of us be today were it not for the grace of God? Now, the book of Romans is primarily a doctrinal treatise for the church. Some have called it the Magna Carta of evangelicalism. The grace of God receives prominent attention here in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Romans. In fact, the term grace is used some 21 times, and nine out of the 16 chapters deal with the theme of God's grace. In fact, if you do an inductive Bible study of the book of Romans, the overall theme could possibly be God's grace is greater. He begins his letter in 1.5 by acknowledging the fact that he's been a recipient of God's grace through Christ. In 1.7, he craves that his readers receive the favor of God to which all spiritual blessings are due. And then he ends his epistle with a note about grace, saying in chapter 16 and verse 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. From beginning to end in the book of Romans, Paul is taken up with this great attribute of the grace of God. And this fifth chapter is particularly helpful to us in gaining an understanding of what This grace is all about. Five times in this fifth chapter, he speaks of God's grace. For example, in chapter 5 and verse 15, he speaks of saving grace. Notice verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. We are saved by grace through faith. He's talking here about saving grace. In chapter 5 and verse 2, he speaks about keeping grace. Notice, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace, underline it in chartreuse, in which we stand. We not only are saved by grace, we are kept by grace. If he has the power to save us, he has also the power to keep us and to help us to stand. And in chapter 12 and verse 6, he speaks of serving grace. He gives, the Bible says, grace gifts to the body so that they may serve one another and edify and build up each other. God's grace is powerful. It transforms the sinner, it keeps the saint, and he motivates all of us to use these gifts that 
we cannot take any pride in these gifts that he gives us to serve each other. And I want you to notice the areas in our lives this morning where God's grace radically affects and transforming and touches. First of all, God's grace touches our standing before God. God's grace is a free gift. We've already read it there in verse 15. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? You see, he uses grace in this way that it is a favor that we receive that we don't deserve. God's not obligated to pardon us. But because of his amazing grace, forgiveness is available because God takes those first steps toward us. Even in our fallen condition. Now just stop and think about that for a minute. In our fallen and sinful state, when we had no inclination or any desire for God, God, because of his grace, takes steps toward us. And as we look more closely here at verse 15, we find that Paul is making a sharp contrast between the free gift, that is God's grace, and the transgression, that is Adam's sin, his offense. Adam's sin, you'll remember, was motivated by selfishness and self-will. He willfully ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, knowing full well that such action would violate God's revealed will and plan for his life. But he did it anyway. And there are many today who know what God wants them to do, but they don't do it. And it's because we are all sinners and we are all fallen. But that did not keep God from loving us and extending to us his grace. The end result of Adam's transgression is judgment and condemnation and ultimately spiritual death. Notice verse 16. The gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin, The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Adam's sin brings condemnation. But the gift followed many transgressions and brought what? Justification. We don't have to remain in our sinful fallen state. It's because of the grace of God that's been extended to us that we can experience the joy of his presence his salvation and giving his life on the cross for us Christ reversed the effects of Adam's sin in becoming our sin bearer he did much more his death on our behalf made it possible for us to experience eternal and abundant life look at verse 17 for if by the trespass of one man death reign through that one man here it is underscore it put a circle around it how much more how much more 
Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Adam's sin brings condemnation. Christ's death at the cross brings justification. He's obedient to the Father's will. Romans 5 and verse 16 says, but the free gift brings justification. Look at verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life to all men. The Bible says, when we are in Christ, we are justified by faith. And what happens? We experience the peace of God. If you're restless and you're not at peace with yourself, you're not at peace with God, you're not at peace with your neighbor, you've never been touched by the grace of God. Because when God's grace touches us, it transforms us. And it makes us more like Jesus. John Newton, that renegade now cast from God, was living on his terms. At the age of 11, he joined his father at sea and became corrupt by the evil men and immoral practices of the slave trade. But the truths that he had learned at his mother's knee as a young lad remained in his conscience. And finally, through the reading of the Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, and a terrifying experience at sea, John Newton surrendered to Jesus. He subsequently became a minister and a great hymn writer. And we sing his great hymn whenever there is a national tragedy. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I'm found was blind. But now I see. That grace of God that transformed John Newton is the grace that is available to every single one of us if we will simply put our trust in what Jesus has already done for us. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, you're a walking dead man. Oh, there may be blood pulsating through your veins, but the blood of Jesus that cleanses from all sin has never touched your life. That can be your experience today if you'll simply put your trust and your faith in him. Not only does God's grace touch, our <coughs> uh, touch us in terms of our relationship to God, but it also in, 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 uh, impacts our singleness of purpose toward God. Look at verse 20. He says, The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin abounded, grace increased all the more. Paul tells us 
that we cannot be saved by following the law. We can do everything that the law says and still be lost in our sins. The law doesn't lead us to God. It only shows us how much we need God. We can never do enough good to inherit what Christ has provided for us on the cross. And there are many false religions today that are all based on works. They come knocking at your door. You meet them in the marketplace. They want to feed you some literature. It's all works-based. And the problem with a works-based religion is that you never know when you've done enough. You see, works don't save us. What saves us is the work of Christ that was accomplished at Calvary for every single one of us. Through one man's sin, we are all sinners. But God's grace is greater. And it negates sin's influence and power in our lives. You see, it is so great that instead of living as close as we can to the world without getting burned, we will seek to live as close to Jesus as we possibly can. See, I don't know how any of us would ever want to go back to the old life when we have been supernaturally changed by the grace of God. John Bradford, the great British expositor of the Reformation, he saw a condemned prisoner being led off to the gallows. And Bradford says, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. Every single one of us. Oh, I'm overwhelmed this morning with the grace of God. He picks us up. He mends our lives. He does for us what we could never do. His grace is more than enough. And his grace does not mean that we should turn that grace into license. No, no. This is what the false teachers were talking about when they heard Paul speak about God's grace. They said, well, well, if God's grace is greater than our sin, why, then let's just go out and sin so we can have more of God's grace. And Paul encountered those kind of folks, and we encountered them even in our day. But how does Paul respond to them? Look at chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Verse 2, put a circle around it. By no means. By no means. You know, there are some who actually live this way today. They, they think that since salvation is free and that get grace is greater than sin, we can just keep on sinning. Oh, free from the law. Oh, happy condition. Now I can sin and there's no perdition. That's a lie of the devil. Paul encountered that 
we encounter the very same thing. See, God's grace is not a license to sin, but rather freedom to live righteously. And Paul makes it very clear in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Notice, he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer notice, be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, he's not arguing here for sinless perfection. The Bible doesn't teach sinless perfection. We get to a place in our spiritual lives where we don't sin again. Rather, he's talking about the incongruity of it. How could it be that someone that is touched by the grace of God would want to get so close to the world and the world's actions that that is a greater influence in his or her life than the grace that has transformed him? You see, grace touches every dimension of our lives. I'm so thankful for God's grace. Number three, our service for God. Grace touches that. Turn over to Romans chapter 12. Look at verse 3. Here it is again. I love this. For by the grace given me, there it is, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance to the measure of faith God has given to you. You see, God in his mercy, he not only saves us by his grace, he not only keeps us by his grace, we stand in the strength of his grace, but his grace empowers us to serve. And if we're not serving, we're not taking advantage of the grace that has been given to us. God's grace empowers us to serve. All of us have spiritual abilities and gifts. Every single one of you. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? Have you identified it? Are you using it for God's glory? Do you understand that that gift God has given you to steward, to use, not to build up yourself, but to use for his glory? You see, gifts are never given for the benefit of the person who receives the gift the gifts are given so we can build others and there's something powerful that happens in a church where everyone is serving and everyone is using their gifts rather than just a few folks serving you know there's some folks they they figured if they give an hour or almost now an hour and 15 minutes oh goodness We've given too much. Oh. Do you realize God wants us to serve? The reason I have been a pastor for the last 54 years is because when I was a teenager, I started serving. I got tired of sitting on the bench. I was in athletics. I played football and basketball and ran the hurdles and track. I never liked to be a bench warmer. I wanted to be where the action is. 
And let me tell you, until you start serving, you have missed the, the, the wow factor of the, the Christian message. When you start serving and using these grace gifts that God gives to you, a whole new world opens up to you. That's why we encourage you to be part of the Sportsman's Banquet, to serve, to get involved, to use whatever talent God has given you to advance his kingdom. It's not about us. It's about, it's about him. It's always about him. Let me wrap this up. God's grace is powerful. Three things I want you to hang on to this morning. God's grace engages us into a personal relationship with God. We are all sinners saved by grace. Aren't you thankful? <laughs> the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And when we come to God and receive his grace, we exchange our unrighteousness, our sinfulness for the righteousness of Christ. Oh, praise the Lord. Number two, it enables us to live a life for God in an unrighteous culture. Because we have that standing in grace, we can stand up, not in our own energy, but in the strength of the living God to anything that this old evil culture throws at us. We don't have to be like a dead fish and just float down the river, do what everybody else is doing? We can stand strong. How do we stand strong? We stand in what? Grace. There it is. Number two. Number three. It equips us to do God's work God's way. Wow. I don't know about you, but I want to be a life giver that is daily enjoying the grace that has been so freely given that we cannot earn but is ours through what Christ has done for us. Let's stand together in closing prayer. Father in heaven, we love you so much. Yeah, we've gone a little bit long. Some of us are getting a little bit antsy. But Lord, we've met you today. And I pray if there's anyone here today who has never personally invited you into their lives, that right now they would say, Lord, I want to receive your gift of grace. I recognize that I'm a sinner and I'm separated from you. But Lord, I want you. I don't want to be under your condemnation. I want to experience the righteousness of Christ. Please, Lord, come into my life. Lord, if anyone is here today that needs to pray that prayer, help them to pray that prayer before they lay their head down on their pillow tonight so that they can experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. 
And then, Lord, help all of us as Christ followers to stand in your grace and to serve in your grace until one day you welcome us home into your kingdom and we hear those words we long to hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and that sweet, sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore we pray. Amen. Good morning. And Maranatha, lo he comes. Happy New Year. God bless you.